Hello and welcome to Design Untangled with me, Chris Mears, and joining me in 2019's Carla Lindarte. How's it going? Hello, how you doing? Yeah, good. We're back from our unscheduled Christmas break, which we decided to have but didn't tell anyone about. So <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for bearing with us and not deleting the feed if you haven't yeah. already. Uh, so how was your Christmas? Apart of being really lazy and not doing any podcasts during the period, um, it's quite good, a bit busy, sometimes a bit quiet other times. So it's a good time to disconnect and think think about something different that is not work or, or anything podcasts. like that. Isn't it? Or a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How was yours? Yeah, pretty good. Cooked for the family and didn't ruin the turkey, so it wasn't too bad. Wow. Was it the first time? Um. No, it wasn't the first time, but it was the first oh. time that I didn't ruin it. <laughs> oh, well, well done. You have to invite me next year to eat the turkey. Well, I thought you were vegetarian, or have you given up on that now? No, I'm not vegetarian anymore, but I, I only eat um, chicken and fish, but not red meat. That's all I okay. don't eat. Yeah. Okay, Just... so a turkey would be fine. I still yeah. remember when I had you around for dinner and cooked you like this big meatball thing. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're a vegetarian. (laughs) Oh, yeah, old times. Yeah, very old times. So what are we talking about? I don't know. I don't know what we're talking about. Um, When was the last time we actually did a podcast? It was a long time ago. And it was the interview with Brendan, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was pre-recorded a few weeks ahead. So it's been a long time since we actually did one of these. So probably a bit rusty. Yeah, just let's apologize in advance for any, um, you know, weird interactions like the one we just having right now. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about design. What, what is it that we're going to call it? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> d- designing with data, I think we're going to go with. Yeah, designing with data. So what is data? How do you define data, Chris? Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind when you say data is people just think of numbers, right? But data in the context of UX design is any sort of data. So it can be quant or qual. So we're talking about um, user interviews are a type of data. Equally, you know, your analytics and stuff, which, you know, you might expect to be also forms part of that data. And they're all just inputs, really, that help inform the design that you're going to create. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I I like to call it rather than data. I like to call it insights. So actually, last towards the end of last year, I run a an event at Google, and we actually talked about data and for creatives, for creative designers, especially in the advertising industry. And there is a still like a lot of um, perception. And when you talk data, or when you say that word of data, or in the world of advertising, it's called programmatic, which is all this technical stuff, is just complex and difficult. And in something that designers or creative people or UX designers are not used to. But at the end of the day, any design process that we do is based on some kind of insight, right? Even if the insight is coming, as you said, from a set of interviews or it's coming from the business and the client telling you that they've identified that being a problem or, you know, it's always coming from an insight rather than, so if you see it as an insight, it's easier to kind of visualize than just data because data kind of is a bit scary, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think they are kind of different though, because data, like you can just say 60% of people drop out on that page. That's data, right? But it needs a layer of kind of interpretation to in- turn it into an insight. So yeah. I think they are a bit different, but the insight is the thing that you want to be working with rather than, you know, just saying, oh, 60 yeah. people drop off here. You need to kind of imply that that might mean, you know, one of your CTAs isn't working or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I mean. I mean, rather than thinking, no, don't think data, think inside. What is the data actually telling you? So yeah. so there are different types of data. I mean, in the advertising world, they talk about first-party data, second-party data, third-party data, but that's more for, you know, marketing. So your first-party data is the data that the company produces themselves in their website or their CRM systems, etc. Second-party data is data you get from partnerships like Google data is a good example of that. Third-party data is data that you buy, but that's from an advertising perspective. From a UX mm-hmm. perspective, you have qual and quant, as you mentioned. Um, in the quant kind of side of things, there's a lot of things that you could think of, but from a UX or design perspective for product design, I would say analytics, you know, from a quant perspective is they're very powerful, like getting access to the analytics, um, you know, of existing channels, uh, even if you're creating a new one, you know, if you like, for example, working on a brand new app, you still would like to look at some of the analytics of the website if the client has a website, etc. Surveys as well, very, very useful. Classic. Yeah. Very classic. Um, they're classic and a lot of people don't use them that much, I think, um, because they tend to be a bit annoying, but they're still very <laughs> powerful. The thing with those as well is it relates more to products that are already in existence, I suppose, because obviously you're not going to have any analytics if you're coming up with something completely new so that's where potentially you need to look at those third-party data sources to look at you know things similar to what you're trying to achieve if you don't have a live product as it stands yeah that's correct so that's why things like um social media listening you know social media data is really useful if you're exploring a new market um you want to look at that particular brand and what people actually you know, similar people actually going and looking at in social media channels or what they're interested in. So that is really powerful. Um, Google data is actually really powerful, not just because I work for Google, but it's actually um, if you had access to a marketing team or advertising team or an agency, um, just go and talk to these people and see if you can pull up some of the Google data available uh, for that if you're already working with a brand if you're creating something brand new there is a lot of like Google Analytics gives you a lot of information Google Trends is another tool so there are multiple tools that you can use um, from a Google perspective to understand what people actually do what they search for where they've been to where they visit I know it sounds a bit creepy but um, it is useful when you try to create something yeah it's all just building up as much of an idea of your target user as you can um obviously you always want to speak to these people when you can um but there are these other avenues which you might not have thought about as sort of ux tools that will enable you to increase your knowledge yeah exactly um you know i i remember as well when i was um working more in ux and less on this advertising 
crazy world. Um, I used to go a lot, like if you don't have budget or time to do user interviews, um, going on YouTube and watching people talking about the topics you are researching, like if it's health related or if it's a fashion related, etc. It's actually quite useful because um, you not you don't always have money and time to do research and get people that's kind of one source you can get some insight at the back of those um but you know as we've spoken in other episodes like guerrilla research even if it's just generating ideas or evaluating an idea is also a quick and easy way to to get it Mm -hmm. done so i guess the point of all this data and ultimately the insights you kind of derive from them are to give you a theory as to what the right design might be for your user Um, and that brings us on to hypothesis driven design which is kind of tangled up within this subject I think and this is where you're Mm -hmm. basically putting forward a theory as to kind of why you think this design is going to work and it allows you to actually test if you were right or not and you can only create that hypothesis when you've got enough information from the data that qual or quant that you've gathered before starting the design process um you really need that to actually form these hypotheses that you can then take in and test your designs against yeah exactly i mean all this data if you have it initially is as you said is gonna you're gonna come up with a lot of ideas of what the solution will be and all these different ideas if you articulate them as a hypothesis um which is what is a hypothesis is a an assumption, right? Is a you can write them in different ways. Like people write them as user stories, as just to be done, or just as sentences. You know, like you just write an assumption, an affirmation of an assumption that you have based on the information that you you have in that in that moment of a potential solution for a problem. Um, so it's actually um, I found that really useful ones. I was doing this project for Adidas, it was really useful to get, you know, the project team to write down, like, together lots of hypotheses because you kind of get people involved in the process and it's kind of a clear way of articulating people's ideas. So you say, let's just put together some hypotheses of what we think the solutions will be. Um, I think it's a good way of collab. It's good to collaborate on those. The only problem with that is then that you end up with too yeah. many hypotheses, which is also a problem yeah but that just comes down to prioritization i think like what's the most important thing you need to prove or disprove and how and maybe you can also do it against the level of uncertainty you've got on those different theories as well so you want to yeah you want to kind of test the ones you're most uncertain about first usually um as a prioritization exercise but the thing i found with hypotheses is like they're fucking difficult to do and they take a really long time to actually mm. get to the point where they're kind of clear enough and you're focusing on a singular thing that you believe. Like it's really hard to get down to that level without being too vague because you've got to be able to test these when you take it into the lab or however you're testing the designs. And it's really hard to get them specific enough to actually do that. Yeah, that is true. I also think that there are more, depending on the stage that you are, they sometimes become very high level. And as you say, if they're, if they're very high level, they're harder to prove or disprove. 
But what you could do is just create some kind of sub-hypothesis at the back of this high-level one that allows you to be more specific about what what are the things that you want to test to prove or disprove. Because, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you just, you know, if you have a very high-level hypothesis, um, it would be harder to to just, you know, validate it or, or, or disprove it with one, you know, research activity or unless you put your whole research plan to validate one, you know, kind of major hypothesis and then just have multiple things at the back of it, it's really hard to do. I also think that, as you said, it's really hard to get to a common way of defining hypothesis or writing hypothesis. I mean, I was recently looking at a, um, a research plan from someone where I, where I work from, uh, where, where I work for, and they were like, this is the list of hypotheses of some pieces of research that they're doing. And they're all very, very different. Like sometimes they're just a massive paragraph with a lot of information in them. Some of them is just more like research objectives rather than hypotheses. So we want to understand this, this and that. I think the, the way I like writing hypotheses is more like affirmations of something and, and very simple affirmations rather than, you know, big paragraphs there's a lot of information in them it makes it quite obvious to stakeholders as well like what their internal assumptions actually are and it makes it easier to say this is what you thought this is what we saw it didn't work out whereas if it's a bit wishy-washy and you know we kind of think if we change this color a bit it might work you know that doesn't really get you anywhere or answer any questions so yeah it's painful Mm -hmm. but you've really got to spend the time just getting them really like nail on the head very defined so that there's kind of no question once you come out of however you're testing it whether you've proved or disproved it yeah and as you said like prioritizing based on how certain you are about the affirmation or assumption that you're making um but sometimes you will prioritize the the ones that you know the most just sometimes the development becomes with like it starts with the most the the easiest thing just to show that they're actually going yeah. fast <laughs> but it should be the other yeah, way around it depends on it the, should be the, other way the around. environment right you've always got to use a bit of common sense yeah. there and also like it, there's always this conversation about quant and quo and what data is best to create your hypothesis and i think you always need to be able to try to combine both um you can't do just one method in my opinion um i think it, it has to be you know depending on what you're trying to achieve it one type of data will be better than the other but always try to you know throughout the duration of your project try to always use both when you can yeah i mean like anything the more insight you've got about the people you're designing for the better your design's going to be right so yeah the more you can gather from as many sources as possible it's likely that you're going to have a better go at yeah. your design. And then more frequently you do it as well. Um, that's why it's, it's good to test, you know, all the time and not just wait until the end to, to do the testing. And it also, I think having more than one sample source as well helps eliminate some of the issues you might find in data. So as I was saying, data requires interpretation and that interpretation can be subject to bias whether kind of consciously or unconsciously so if you throw out a survey your whoever's creating the survey is deliberately asking about 
certain things and not other things because you can't ask unlimited questions Mm. right so you're inevitably applying some sort of bias to the results you're going to get so by using more than one different source you can try and smooth that out a little bit hopefully Mm -hmm. anyway exactly I mean biases are very are very that always there in your mind um and they're very difficult to fight, but they're more different types of information and different type of people you bring into your research and your design process, the better. I was actually recently in a conference from a guy from Google saying that there is a lot of like assumptions that we make based on things that we know, our biases and, um, you know, information that we stored in our minds. So he was saying that, um, gaming for example has always been known as something for kids right but data and that's what data is powerful um has demonstrated that 45 percent of video game searches on, on mobile are over 35 especially in the u.s so when you think about mm-hmm. all of these things um you know you are working on a particular project and you have all these biases in your mind you really need to rely on the data available to be able to, you know, create your hypothesis and prove them or disprove them and make sure that you include as many different types of, you know, angles to the problem, to the solution to the problem. We should do an episode on biases, actually, because it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reading that um, book thing, uh, Fast and Slow, and then Slow, and it talks about the system one and system two and how all majority of your actions are based on, um, the system um, one, which is the unconscious one, a lot of the things that you've learned are actually stored in there. So your reactions, your kind of primary reactions to things before you actually think about something um, are based on the things that you've experienced in life. Yeah. So biases are very, very powerful and can really change the course of any you know design process if you know you know, if you don't care about that. Yeah. And from the user's point of view as well, right, it's going to affect their interaction with your design, all those biases that they've accumulated throughout their lives, that's going to affect, you know, how they interact with it. So yeah, it comes into play both from the side of the designer and also the person using the design. Yeah, it's actually, we might find an expert in unconscious biases. Um, there is a lady who does run these workshops at Google. She's really good. We might just do that. <laughs> Everything that happens at Google, doesn't it? It's got so many plugs on this episode. <laughs> right. No, that wasn't that wasn't intended to do, to do any plugs <laughs> with Google because anything I say has nothing to do with Google. All um, but they do own, have right? a lot of stuff. They do definitely they have a lot have... of stuff. We'll give them that. They do have a lot of stuff, yes. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it was also um, in that event I was mentioning before, uh, I was having a conversation with uh, someone who attended the event about whether or not designers, um, especially in the creative space, you know, advertising creative space, um, should learn more about data, you know, should they learn more about analytics, should they learn more about statistics, should they learn about, you know, all this stuff or is that always something that is going to be done by someone else? And then there's just, you know, kind of the the brain to come up with the ideas. What do you think? Do you think like designers and creatives should be more data driven or not? Um, I think they should. I don't think that they should always be the ones doing the full time kind of digging into the data, I think. 
I kind of believe a bit more in specialism, but with appreciation for what other people do. So I think if you don't have the skills to drill into databases and run SQL queries and stuff, then I don't think it's necessarily your job as a designer to go out and learn that. But I think what you should be doing is working with the person who can do that for you and helping them understand what you're trying to get from the data as well. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with learning new skills, of course. That's where I sit. Yeah, that. That, I think that is my point. I mean, the more designers and creatives know about what data is available, even if they don't necessarily go out there and pull it out from the systems, as, as, as you said, they, they need to have an understanding, in my opinion, of the possibilities of data or the things that they can actually learn from the data. So, you know, we were talking in that day in that event about like signals, you know, it could be, you know, signals of like weather signals or, um, uh, you know, media signals or people, you know, who view this also view that. And, you know, there's a lot of data and information that is out there that designers should know more about what's there. So then when they tackle a new creative uh, brief, they think about all the possibilities. There's also before, and I think, I don't know if you've done it as well, like I used to present a lot of design hypotheses and assumptions based on some interviews and perhaps some information about analytics. Um, and that's it. And I think, you know, I think now there is a lot of tools and opportunity to go deeper and be more certain about the different options that you can have as a solution, a design solution. And also the the perception of just having one big solution, a big idea, I think will change with time. And it's just going to be more like as personalization is actually, you know, uh, uh, real because right now we talk about personalization, but no one, very few people are actually delivering it. As, you know, personalization becomes more a thing, you could actually say that you can come up with different solutions for the same product, but based on different types of audiences or different types of users. So my point is that the more understanding you have of the possibilities of data, the more kind of a better designer you're going to be in my opinion. But you're right. I don't necessarily think they are the ones who be sitting down and, you know, they need to just work with data scientists, basically, to just make sure. But they also need to understand their language and the way they communicate as well. So then they can interpret that data and get the right insight to what they're delivering. Yeah, exactly. And I think as we move forward, this is only going to become more prevalent. And I think there'll probably be more user-friendly ways to get at data as well. So it might be a bit less about writing database queries and you'll have some sort of interface to help you get at that data a bit easier. Um, but we shall see. Yeah. I mean, not to talk about Google again, no, but I think <laughs> <laughs> recently they've been introducing um, natural language in the way they ask questions to Google Analytics, which I thought it was quite cool because... Um, you don't necessarily have to go there and kind of try to praise, press all the right buttons. You just ask a question, um, which and then the the system kind of pulls all the information you need. It's very nascent still, but 
you know, I think that's where they're going. So uh, you're absolutely right. That if you, if you, with time, all these interfaces will be more user-friendly and more, you know, accessible for everyone. All right. We got any more on data? What did we call this episode again? No. Design with data. Data. Design with data and like blogs to Google. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was really sponsored by Google. That was Google. really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that was really bad. I didn't mean it though. I just like recently I've been talking about data and creativity, so that's why it's fresh in my mind. So that's why. Um, right. That's it. First one of the year done. Yeah, first one of the year. So hope this was useful. If you have any questions or any feedback, um, if you have any ideas of uh, new topics you want to talk about, people you want us to interview, um, excluding Donald Trump. I don't want to interview Donald Trump. Uh, we can always find them and, um, yeah, just whatever you want, just let us know. Give us some feedback. What did you think of the fireworks this year? Did you watch them? Yeah, I watched them on TV. They were really cool. Yeah, very... Very political fireworks, weren't they? I, I literally have decided not to read any news anymore. I think that is a very, very good idea and a good thing to take forward into 2019. I suggest all our listeners yeah. turn off their CNN or BBC News, whatever you're watching, and go and have a beer. Yeah, and, or listen to us. Yeah, just on loop. And by the end of it, there'll <laughs> all be Google clones, I think. Oh, no! <laughs> I've been uh, Google brainwashed then. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I'll see you next time then. Yeah, see you later. Bye. Bye. Search and subscribe to Design Untangled using your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Follow us on the web at designuntangled.co.uk or on Twitter at Design Untangled. Become a better designer with online mentoring at uxmentor.me.